0: And as you take your seat, you can turn in your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, as we continue this series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans. This morning we are going to look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 3. Remember, for the last couple of weeks, Paul has spent the bulk of chapter 2 humbling his fellow Jews. They think very highly of themselves, especially with reference to the Gentiles. And Paul addressed their self-righteous attitude and behavior, and he made it abundantly clear that, just like the Gentiles, Jews are lawbreakers too. In the first eight verses of chapter 3, we find Paul dealing with some objections. We don't know the source of these objections, Paul may have simply put them forward as issues he heard from some Jews, or he may have formulated these objections himself, perhaps as a product of his thinking prior to his conversion. C.K. Barrett said, "...it's easier to follow Paul's argument if the reader imagines the apostle face-to-face with a heckler who makes interjections and receives replies." Professor Dunn said, we would probably not be far from the mark if we were to conclude that Paul's opponent in this debate is Paul himself. Paul, the unconverted Pharisee, expressing attitudes that Paul had prior to his conversion. Remember, Paul saw Christianity as a major threat to Judaism, as well as the very character of God that we worship. And so in Paul's mind, the movement had to be crushed. I'm sure Paul had these thoughts and feelings in mind. So the details of the debate are a little bit hard to grasp, as this passage is hard to choke down. (laughs) Paul will elaborate fully on these objections and these topics in chapters 9 through 11. So if you want an understanding, a full, more orbed understanding of all that Paul is talking about in these objections, you read through Romans 9 through 11, and Paul will spell it out, and we'll be covering those chapters, obviously, in the weeks to come. What we do know here is that Paul's teaching in chapter 2, verses 25 to 29, our message last week, prompts these objections, namely, that there is no fundamental difference between Jews and Gentiles and that the the law and circumcision guaranteed neither Jewish immunity to judgment of God or Jewish identity as the people of God. You remember Paul said a true Jew is one from the heart whose circumcision is of the heart. And a Gentile can experience that experience as much as a Jew. And so this seemed to call into question God's covenant, his promises, and his character. And that's what you have in these eight verses. These verses prompt four distinct but related objections that are offered. I want to list them out to you as you're taking notes, perhaps. The first objection is in verses 1 and 2. Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant. That is the objection. The second objection is in verses 3 and 4. Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness. The third objection is in verses 5 and 6. Paul's teaching eliminates God's righteousness. And the fourth objection is in verses 7 and 8. Paul's teaching violates God's glory. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Holy Spirit, be our master teacher. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we may see the exalted and glorified Lord Jesus through these pages of Scripture today. Bless us, Lord, in our time of study together. We ask now humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first objection is in verses 1 and 2. That is, the Jews would contend Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant. You see verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has a Jew? And what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul is quick to say, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. You see, the reasoning here is that if Jews are no better than Gentiles, then they have no status as God's covenant people. And Paul's teaching means God is no longer or never was a covenant-keeping God. And if there really is no covenant people, then all the covenants of the Bible, the covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, all of those covenants must be null and void. See, the conclusion of this reasoning is God is not personal, and He does not condescend to humanity. Part of the beauty and the glory of the triune God is His willingness to come to His people and initiate a personal Relationship with them by way of a covenant. You see, God is so great, so vast, so far beyond our comprehension that we would never know anything about him if he did not condescend to our level. And he chose to do that by way of a covenant. The Westminster Confession of Faith outlines this beautifully in chapter 7, verse 1. Let me paraphrase it for you. We could never have any fruition of the Lord as our blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he hath been pleased to express by way of a covenant. See, God made all of these covenants first with Adam and then with Abraham or with Noah, then with Abraham and Moses right down to David. And so Paul's correction is, my teaching does not undermine God's covenant. On the contrary, the gospel of Jesus Christ takes the concept of God's gracious covenant to new heights. You see, the Jews' failure to keep covenant with God, which he gave to them in the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, led the Lord to bring about a new covenant, which he would inaugurate and fulfill himself. And God fulfills and completes all of His covenant promises to the Jews as well as the Gentiles in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so far from undermining God's covenant with His chosen people, Paul's teaching, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, expands God's covenant. And it takes it to a whole new level. See, the self-righteous Jews thought if we are no different than the Gentiles, then what difference does God's covenant make? And Paul says you need to look a little harder. You need to look at the spiritual realm and realize that this God that we worship is indeed personal. And he has come down to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a movement called deism, an intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th centuries. It accepted the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but it rejected belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with human beings. And sadly, that movement has continued to this day. We don't like a personal God. There's a part of us that shuns him. But when we yield to him, and we recognize that He has come close to us in order to redeem us from our sin, in order to forgive us, then we realize our God has always been and will always be a covenant-keeping God. Let me apply that practically. We may rest assured that our God keeps His Word. He never breaks His promises. He is completely true to his word, and he cannot lie. And the Lord loves us so much, the writer of Hebrews points out that God, who never lies, took an oath. You remember when he made that covenant with Abraham, and the writer of Hebrews says, To show the unchangeable purposes of this great, magnificent God in salvation in Christ, God did two things. He gave a covenant, and then he made an oath that he himself would keep that covenant. And that's what he did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, and we could take great comfort in that. Even as the writer, I believe, of Hebrews says once again, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He is the true Israel of God. He is the true vine who never forsakes his word. Furthermore, we can have great comfort in knowing our covenant-keeping God is extremely personal with regard to his involvement in the world and in our individual lives. This God knows the name of every star, and he calls them all by name. You know the stars are innumerable, just like the sand on the sea. When you read Isaiah 40, you see this great, magnificent, awesome God calls every single star by name as he leads them out in procession. Jesus made it clear that he, as part of the triune God, knows the number of the hairs on our head. He knows you and loves you. I don't know where you're at this morning individually, but I want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul said. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. Your God loves you and he is working in your life regardless of your circumstances. And his great plan is to bring about your redemption and your sanctification. One day your glorification. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. Objection number one, dismissed. The second objection, Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now the reasoning here is that it follows the first objection. If Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant, then it also renders God's faithfulness null and void. How could it be that any Jew would be guilty of unbelief? I mean, the very name Jew means believer in Jehovah. But it was in word only. You remember Isaiah said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And this objection presupposes the Jews' special place as special place and privilege as God's chosen people. See, at the heart of this objection is, look, Paul, all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul's going to deal with that in chapter 11, but not the way these guys think. When he says all Israel will be saved, he's including the Gentiles with the Jews in Romans chapter 11 because Jesus is the true Israel of God. Israel as a nation failed. They were not true. They were not faithful to Jehovah, but Christ is faithful. And there's something sinister about this objection as it tends to shift responsibility of Jewish unbelief from the sinner to God. The sinfulness and failure of any Jews, according to this objection, is God's fault. You see, this kind of thinking says to God, why did you make me like this? It's your fault that I am a sinner. It's the age-old sickness of blame-shifting instead of owning our sin. And so this objection says, well... God is not a covenant-keeping God, then he certainly cannot be faithful. It nullifies his faithfulness. And our conclusion is we have no special status apart from the Gentiles because of the Mosaic covenant that God has ceased to be faithful. Now you notice Paul's correction. It is swift and severe. He says, may it never be. I understand from one scholar that these words don't do the objection or Paul's, may it never be, justice. What he is really saying is, not in a million years. That's the thrust of what Paul is saying. No way, not on your life. He goes on to say, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. You see, the quote in verse 4 is from Psalm 51, David's famous confessional prayer. And this is significant, because it demonstrates God's faithfulness in the face of King David's sin and his unfaithfulness to God. and So Paul's correction, in essence, is this. God has always been faithful from the time of the Exodus all the way to the monarchy. God has been faithful. And David demonstrates the fact that a true Israelite owns and confesses his or her sin. They never shift blame to God as if he were unfaithful. You can see the arrogance and the pride In this objection, as seen in making much of man and little of God. I mean, this is the one true and living God who declares the end from the beginning. This is the God who cannot lie, the God who is sovereign over all of human history. But men and women, in their arrogance apart from God, can get so perverse that they shift the blame for their sin. God must be responsible. He's no longer faithful. We have a tendency to reduce God to our level. Psalm 51 says that. God is speaking and he says, you thought I was just like you. It's an indictment to say that we need to remember the fact that God is infinitely greater than we are. That his knowledge is vast. That he exists independent of his creation. And no one taught him knowledge. No one taught him wisdom. We need to magnify the Lord, as it says in Psalm 145. You know the amazing thing about that? When you magnify something, the thing doesn't get bigger. Your perspective of it gets bigger and larger. And the Lord says, magnify me. Magnify my name. Come and bow and get to know me. We see the Sadducees in today's gospel reading. They were so full of themselves. They approached Jesus and, oh, man, we got you now. All right, Jesus, there was this guy who got married, and then he died. And he had seven brothers, and all of them married the same woman. Now, in the resurrection, which they incidentally didn't believe in, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And the Lord said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of Almighty God. You've tried to reduce me. You've tried to reduce the triune God to your level. And you can't do it. The Lord was faithful. He was faithful to Israel in the Exodus. He was faithful here to David. And if the king of all Israel could say, you are blameless, you are the only one who can judge, I am guilty of my sin, who is anyone else to argue with God? And Paul will make this clear in Romans 9. The pottery doesn't say to the potter, why did you make me like this? We are responsible for our sins. God is not. There is no evil or sin in him, according to Psalm 5. We need to humble ourselves and not make much of man. Sinners do not have the power, moreover, to manipulate God and his faithfulness. See, that's what these people are saying. Notice how arrogant they are. This unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? They're insinuating that somehow man's actions could lead to the lack of faithfulness on God's part. And sadly, many go through life believing this fiction, that their actions and their behavior condition God's behavior, that they, not God, are really the measure of all things. This is not simply a Jewish objection. It gives birth to humanism. The thought that I am the measure of all things. You know, humanism was a Renaissance cultural movement, a system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine and supernatural matters. But it's the Lord who is in control. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and who keep His commandments. The Apostle Paul said, Faithful is He who called you, and He also will bring it to pass. I love the words of the Apostle Paul and the pastorals. If we are faithless, He remains faithful for he cannot deny his own. Brothers and sisters, we are part of the body of Christ, and the Lord Jesus is faithful as he brings about the fruition of our union with him throughout this life. And so the second objection needs to be discarded in the interest of God's truth in his word. Notice quickly a third objection. Paul's teaching not only undermines God's covenant, so these people think. Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness, or so it seems. Thirdly, Paul's teaching eliminates God's righteousness. Look at verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. It's almost as if Paul is embarrassed to have to bring this stuff up. May it never be once again. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? See, the reasoning with this objection is a holy God cannot possibly demonstrate his righteousness through unrighteous people. Paul, that doesn't fit our understanding of God. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then God is unrighteous, He doesn't have the right to judge and inflict wrath. You know, our argument is based on another faulty presupposition that we Jews have always been righteous by virtue of our name, by virtue of our pedigree, by virtue of our birthright. We're God's chosen people. And God's righteousness depends on the righteousness of us. That's what this objection is in essence saying. That God's righteousness depends on the righteousness of his people rather than the reverse. And you see, the first is a fiction. God's righteousness is completely independent of us. Quite the contrary, our righteousness depends on him. We are not righteous in and of ourselves, like this objection puts forward. And so the conclusion is, if there is no covenant, then God is not faithful. And if our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, then he is in no position to judge or exercise his wrath. Paul once again says, may it never be. How does he answer? He says, how will God otherwise judge the world? In other words, that is a certainty. God will judge the world. He is not unrighteous. His righteousness doesn't depend on the creature. On the contrary, our righteousness in and of ourselves is insufficient to be brought before a holy God. See, once again, the creature raises his or her intellect above God's Word. And sinful creatures bring God down to our level. I am righteous. A Jew would say, I'm righteous over these Gentiles. Surely God is a righteous God and he's going to declare me righteous in my own righteousness. But the gospel that Paul teaches says no. The only righteousness that you can have is the righteousness of God's sinless, peerless son. And you must be clothed in that righteousness that your sin might be atoned for and that you might be genuinely forgiven. That you might enjoy a completely clear conscience. That is salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul corrects the faulty notion by reaffirming that God will indeed judge the world, inflicting wrath on his enemies and extending grace and kindness to his children. And Paul contends that just like the Gentiles, the Jews are sinners. And no amount of their perceived righteousness, which doesn't exist, is enough to stand before a holy God. You see, the fundamental problem here is the failure to see one's unrighteousness against the vast immeasurable grace and kindness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must remember our unrighteousness before we can put on the righteousness of Christ in the gospel. In other words, the good news of God's Word is that the Lord remains righteous. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that faith is not based on your or my perceived righteousness. We don't have any. God is so far beyond us, not only in wisdom and in His intellect, but in terms of holiness And so, any notion that our righteousness could achieve his favor is faulty. We have to humble ourselves and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Only in God's condescension to sinners, only in his faithfulness to his unfaithful children, can he come and furnish the very righteousness that he demands, which we lack. And only Jesus can provide. Do you have that righteousness this morning? Well, a fourth observation, a fourth objection. Paul's teaching violates God's glory. Look at verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, the good may come. Their condemnation is just. If God demonstrates, here's the reasoning behind this objection, if God demonstrates His righteousness through unrighteous people, then it naturally follows that, one, we should not be judged as sinners. And secondly, we should do evil that good may come. We should sin all we can in order to bring more glory to God. That's the distortion. And Paul himself says, My lie brings about the truth of God to his You see, these people are completely misunderstanding. They don't see the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. They cannot understand it with their minds because their minds are hardened. And the Lord is not, His glory is not violated by Paul's teaching. The base argument is, what you're saying, Paul, is an incentive to sin. If being bad makes God look good, we will be as bad as we can be. So he looks better and better. And if our evil behavior brings out the goodness of the glory of God, then we should abandon all restraint and live unbridled lives of self-seeking pleasure. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The conclusion is there's no such thing as sin. For if my evil behavior glorifies God, then how should I be judged as a sinner? That's unfair. And ladies and gentlemen, this objection demonstrates how far men and women go astray to the truth. From the truth. We have a great potential to enter the world of the absurd. To engage in perverse thinking and actions that completely defy reality. Isn't that where we're at as a country? (laughs) More and more, the further we go, we deny reality. We deny truth. We claim truth in one place until it's inconvenient for us personally. Then we deny it. See, the legacy here is hedonism and existentialism. If I don't believe in a heaven or hell, if there is no judgment, if life is nothing but self-actualization and figuring out who I am, without letting any other human conventions define me, without listening to any truth whatsoever. It's all on me. That's existentialism. And it leads to this kind of behavior. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no accountability for my actions. And sadly, many people go through life, many, many more and more, believing the fiction, that their function is to discover who they really are, engaging in all forms of immoral thinking and behavior. This kind of thinking says we were not created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. No, we were created for self-existent creatures and the priority is self-actualization, self-satisfaction, to discover our full potential. Paul offers a correction. Paul considers this clearly and abundantly absurd which is why he does not bother to address this kind of thinking this argument disregards the difference between good and evil paul rightfully refuses to give an answer but simply says their condemnation is deserved how can you possibly think like this how can you possibly offer an objection what paul doesn't say is true anyway god's glory was made manifestly known in his general revelation And his glory became even more evident at Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments. But God's glory is supremely magnified and exalted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How? By his immeasurable, boundless love for we sinners. It is not our sin which glorifies God. It is his vast, immeasurable love for us While we were still in our sins, Romans 5 says, which led him to send his one and only sinless Son as a sin bearing sacrifice for our salvation. And what is the result? We become new creatures according to his unfathomable grace and mercy. And we display his glory as redeemed sinners. All of us are in the same mess. We don't glorify God. We don't truly enjoy him until we come into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle John said in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you come to know Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you experienced his grace and coming to grips with the truth that we are sinners in need of salvation? Because if you do that, the glory of God will be seen as you stare in a mirror. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.8. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Moses couldn't behold the glory of God. He had to have a veil to protect himself. But what Paul is saying is when you come into the light and you confess your sins and throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ, you'll not only be forgiven, you yourself will reflect the glory of the triune God. Because Jesus Christ will live inside of you and your face will shine way beyond what Moses' face did shine because of his great, great salvation. No, Paul's teaching doesn't violate God's glory. Like all the others, it just takes it to a whole new level. Let me plead with you this morning. If you've never Engaged in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me invite you lovingly to do that this morning. That's what this supper represents. We come to this table because we're hungry, thirsty, needy people, and we need a Savior more than anything else. And when we embrace that Savior, He opens up clearly the truth about life, about everything, about ourselves that we can handle. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, sometimes more challenging than other times. And we thank you, Lord, that we practice evangelism and apologetics so that our thinking remains straight, so that we can tell the world and we can take apart so many notions that are so perverse and so erroneous. Lord, thank you for such a great salvation in Christ. And I pray now as we approach your table, that we would come in a solemn manner with thankful hearts, that we would feast upon the living Christ through this sacrament. Bless us to that end now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.